Hey everybody, this is Dr. Sam Byrne, and I'd like to welcome you to another iClarity podcast. We've got some wonderful questions today, so I think I'm just going to begin. And the first question I'm going to take is from Becky. Uh, She writes that she's um, having an early cataract developing that's due to head trauma from a car accident years ago. She's also been been, uh, diagnosed with high pressures, but the pressures in the eye are not high enough to be put on drops for glaucoma. And both of these situations are occurring only in her left eye. So she wants to know what advice and products I might suggest to prevent the progression. Well, in going through the, the literature, um, the American Academy of Ophthalmology wrote a, a very informative article in August 2016 in something called iNet Magazine. And they talked about the, the common uh, problems that occur from ocular trauma. In fact, what they say in the article is up to one-fifth of adults experience who will experience ocular trauma at some point in their lives, 20%. Um, and a study performed for the World Health Organization estimated that up to 55 million eye injuries occur annually worldwide. So in terms of the lens trauma and secondary conditions, there are a couple ways that trauma affects the lens of the eye. Uh, First of all, um, when you receive some kind of um, trauma, now this could be either penetrating ocular trauma. In your case, Becky, it sounds like it's a secondary trauma. Um, What happens is it actually begins to disrupt the lens fibers, and this actually causes uh, some kind of oxidative stress to occur. And if the capsule of the lens is uh, either ruptured or, again, has been jarred, uh, lens proteins actually interfere with the flow. We call it the aqueous flow in the eye. And this can actually clog up the meshwork. um, And this can lead to uh, inflammation. It can lead to higher eye pressure And, of course, it can lead to uh, cataracts. So what I I heard you say is that uh, this is an early-stage cataract. Um, So the chances of you slowing it down or reversing it are better than, say, if you had a uh, full-blown traumatic cataract. Um, So I'm going to give you some things to consider and you know the the strategy with we'll start with the with the lens health i think number 1 it starts with uh diet and <clears throat> you know i've been beating this drum for a long time eating foods that are anti-inflammatory more plant-based you know i think it starts with the fats and oils definitely the omega 3 fatty acids um Very important both for uh, reducing inflammation, but also for lens health and uh, perhaps bringing your eye pressure down. 
So part of the omega-3 fatty acids would be your nuts and seeds, uh, GMO, uh, free walnuts and almonds. I actually like the sprouted ones if you can get them. Um, if you do eat animal products, I would recommend wild-caught oily fish. Uh, again, we know that the DHA in omega-3 fatty acids is really important for eye health. And, you know, for those people out there who have been diagnosed with glaucoma or are their suspect uh, for glaucoma, one of the keys is protecting your optic nerve health. And one of the best ways to protect your optic nerve health is to make sure you're getting enough DHA in your diet. There have been a number of studies that associate um, getting DHA into your body, either through supplementation or through foods, and as a way to support the optic nerve health and kind of neutralize the higher eye pressure. Obviously, berries are another really important food because they contain loads of flavonoids and antioxidants. Um, and so this will help um, neutralize free radical damage. And we know that in a cataract, whether it's traumatically formed uh, you know, from, from trauma or just you know, normal aging, that oxidative stress is, is the key factor. And if you can reduce the free radical damage, uh, you're going to keep your lens healthy. Fermented foods is another one, you know, containing an abundance of beneficial bacteria, you know, the microbiome, making sure we're getting enough uh, healthy probiotics in our intestinal tract. Uh, this is going to support and promote, you know, memory, cognition, brain health, um, and uh, also retinal health. So <clears throat> remembering your fermented foods, obviously the green leafy vegetables, the things that contain the vitamins and minerals, the vitamin A, beta carotene, vitamin C, vitamin K, potassium, iron, folate. Um, you know, these antioxidants <clears throat> are so important. And of course, I talk about things like asparagus, which has glutathione <clears throat> in it, kale, broccoli, spinach, um, you know, so they contain lutein and um you know, these antioxidants, carotenoids are so important for our eye health. Avocados are another one of my favorites because they contain lutein in it, which is very important um, to protect your macula. And uh, eating an avocado a day is a really good thing to do. Again, if you eat animal products, I would go for pasture-fed eggs. <clears throat> um, Eggs also contain lutein and zeaxanthin, and uh, they also contain sulfur. Sulfur is the third leading trace mineral in the body. Um, and, and then turmeric. Uh, you know, I've talked a lot about the association between turmeric and um, eye health, reducing inflammation. Um, it's just, overall, it's great for systemic health. And it's the curcumin in turmeric that uh, is really essential <clears throat> for your health. Now, in terms of the cataract itself, what I would do in terms of targeting um, healthy lens is I would start in with my MSM eye drops. And I'm probably for you, I would do the 15% MSM followed by the Cinerary Homeopathic Cataract Reversing Eye Drops, the homeopathic. I would do those three times a day. 
uh, and for a minimum of three months. And those particular eye drops in combination uh, can uh, return the lens to its healthy state and uh, reduce oxidative stress. I would also consider uh, a glutathione supplement. I like a sublingual, uh, something that is going to be easily absorbed into your intestinal tract and into the, your bloodstream. And then, of course, uh, you know, the, the essential <clears throat> vitamins and minerals that include things like vitamin A, vitamin C. Vitamin C is, uh, has been associated with lens health. So there's, there was a study I reported on in the UK recently that uh, took a look at people who were developing cataracts and had lower levels of vitamin C intake. And the results of the study showed that those that increased their uh, vitamin C intake had a 33% <clears throat> lower risk factor of developing cataracts. So uh, the eye nutrients are very, very important. Oh, obviously, omega-3 fatty acids, which I talked about. I would consider um, getting some craniosacral therapy. You know, for any trauma that we, uh, we experience, head, neck, body, uh, there's a phenomenon that goes on when we have trauma that um, our body tends to protect itself by isolating it uh, itself from the rest of, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the body because it's a defense mechanism. So we say, well, I don't want to get injured again. But what it does is it reduces the energy flow in the body and it creates a paralysis in that particular area in terms of being able to absorb nutrients which is why any kind of um, uh, trauma therapy that can, uh, especially body-centered, that can help release the trauma <clears throat> and return and restore the body to its energy flow is really important, especially if it's an old injury. Uh, so I would seek out an osteopathic craniosacral therapist. Uh, I would consider some Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Um, these would be uh, some things that I would certainly pursue in my hopes of being able to neutralize or reverse cataracts and uh, uh, also to bring my eye pressure down. So I hope that helps. Um, that's the strategy that I would, uh, I would go for. Keep in touch, and thanks so much for the question. All right, this next question is from Ruthie, and she's writing, Dear Dr. Sam, I was recently diagnosed with anisometropia and wondered if you had addressed this in any of your podcasts. I see double on horizontals more than verticals, but I'm not sure if that is my astigmatism. Many thanks. So anisometropia is a condition where the two eyes have unequal refractive power. This means that each eye can be nearsighted, or farsighted, or a combination. But when one eye is nearsighted and one eye is farsighted, that's called antimetropia. So Ruthie's asking about anisometropia. So both eyes are either nearsighted or farsighted, but there's a two-diopter difference between one eye and the other. So a diopter is a unit of measure that measures the power of the lens. So that could be like one eye is two diopters of nearsighted and the other eye is four diopters of nearsighted, um, or they could both be farsighted, but it's that two diopter split 
between the eyes that creates this condition. So in breaking it down, what does this mean? It means that the brain <clears throat> is having to decide where to focus the eyes. So let's say, you know, you're holding a book at 14 inches and you've got this condition of nearsightedness where say one eye is four diopters of nearsighted and one eye is two, two diopters of nearsightedness. Depending on where you hold the book, that particular eye is going to engage with the book, but the other eye is just going to be left out in the cold. It has nowhere to focus. So there are two different uh, focusing distances, and this creates a double vision. Uh, and so the brain says, well, I don't like double vision, so I'm going to suppress or ignore one of the eyes to avoid double. Or, like what Ruthie is dealing with, she's dealing with a double vision situation that's split horizontally, which means that the double is <clears throat> horizontal as opposed to vertical. And then she's asking about astigmatism. Well, if you get double vision from astigmatism, usually you cover one eye, and if that eye by itself is looking at something and you get double vision there, that's usually more related to astigmatism. Now, you certainly can have a double vision with astigmatism using both eyes, but that's not quite as common as uh, testing it out. And of course, you know, you can ask your doctor if you have astigmatism. You know, astigmatism means that the eye has lost its spherical shape, so it's more of an egg shape. Uh, there's an asymmetrical shape of the eye, and I call it a twist. Uh, that's what astigmatism is. And so the twist in the eye uh, creates this irregular blur, and it can be uh, either a, a distorted a blur or a double vision blur, but it's usually which, with each eye separately. So back to the anisometropia. <clears throat> if you have this condition, um, the eye therapy, the physical eye therapy exercises are a wonderful way to begin to teach your brain and eyes to collaborate and cooperate together to start focusing at the same distance. And, you know, many years ago, I was uh, teaching a workshop um, at a retreat center. And uh, the retreat center, they had asked me to teach a group of uh, rolfers and body workers. And uh, so I was doing this eye workshop and Everybody was asking me to calculate their eye prescription by watching their body movements, their posture, and actually I could do that very accurately. So my point of the story is, is that any prescription that's in the eye is also showing up in the body. So say, Ruthie, for example, your right eye has a little bit of nearsightedness and your left eye has a large amount of nearsightedness. The right side of the body and the left side of the body are also going to mirror that. It's also going to show up in your cognitive processing, in your brain. Um, it's going to show up in your posture. It's going to show up in a lot of different areas. So, you know, this is that idea that whatever is going on in the eyes uh, has an echo that, that's going on in the body. And so if you create more integration in the body, either through body work or through some bilateral movement exercises, you can actually change the prescription in the eyes. Now, if you're working in the physical eye therapy at the same time, then you're, um, 
you're also changing the prescription in the eyes to work with the body. So it's a two-way street. And obviously the brain is the traffic director here, which tells the eyes where to look. So this is a re-education, it's a reprogramming, it's a retraining. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight because any eye prescription that we get is based a lot on habits and conditioning. It's also based on our response to stress. It's, it's an adaptation that we're making. And it's much more than just blaming it on genetics. Now, some strategies that I have tried that work really well with anisometropia is that I use contact lenses to correct both eyes. And when you wear contact lenses, you reduce the spherical aberration, the distortion that you may get from glasses. If you wear glasses and you've got anisometropia, it's much harder to bring your two eyes together because you're wearing a big lens, it's, it's uh, further away from your eye than a contact lens, and usually you end up just seeing double or suppressing one of your eyes. So um, on my um, website, I have something called Enhanced Learning Eye Clarity Exercise Program. It's a 90-day program. And I use that one as a way to help people get more integrated in their eyes, brain, and body. So number one, I would ask your doctor for some contact lenses that would correct you for distance so that even if one eye is very different than the other, that would give you the best chance to get your eyes to work together and it may reduce the double. And then I would do this uh, enhanced learning 90-day eye clarity program that's, uh, that's on my website. Um, so those would be the two things that I would consider uh, obviously, double vision is very disconcerting, and um, you know you might consider also doing my eye exercise called eye dialogue. That's actually using a patch and bringing mindful awareness to each eye separately. Um, you know, one of the questions I ask in the eye dialogue is, uh, "Right eye, do you know you're married to the left eye?" And left eye, do you know you're married to the right eye? I know that's kind of a funny thing to ask. But usually what ends up happening in anisometropia is the eyes have no clue that they're married. They're usually sleeping in separate bedrooms. And this is very disturbing for the brain to have to try to muscle and get both eyes to work together. Uh, because organically, the, um, the preferred way of using your eyes is that they work together. And if you're getting double vision and they don't work together, you have to overcome that compensation and it's very draining uh, in your energy. One last point, Ruthie, uh, with this anisometropia, certainly I've used this in my practice, is I would get some craniosacral therapy because some of the neuromuscular, uh, the way the bones, the fascia, uh, even the bones in the head, around the eyes, uh, your face, Sometimes doing craniosacral therapy can realign uh, the, the, um, the bones and the fascia in the face and in the head, uh, even in the uh, occipital cortex and the, the cervical spine, <clears throat> that that can actually support your two eyes to start working together. So it's like the body supports the eyes to work together and the eyes support the body. Right now, that's probably not happening for you. So that's, um, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, keep in touch, especially if you start in with the eye exercises. And thank you so much for the question.
All right, next question. Um, this is from Amy, and she wants to know my insights into glaucoma and the medications that are prescribed, uh, especially relating glaucoma to asthma. Well, thank you so much for the question. Um, yes, this is a this is a very important uh, topic, and so let's start here. That <clears throat> nasal steroids that are commonly inhaled for um, asthma actually can be a, a causative factor of open angle glaucoma. Now this is the most common type of glaucoma where the aqueous flow or the aqueous production is um, out of balance and this creates the eye pressure going up um, and so what the eye doctors do is they treat it like um, high blood pressure and they start using different kinds of medications to, uh, to bring the eye pressure down. Now, with asthma uh, and you start using uh, any kind of steroids, uh, this actually can trigger, uh, especially long-term use, uh, an increase in the intraocular pressure and uh, also, long-term, it could uh, put you at a higher risk of developing cataracts. Um, now, in terms of uh, both asthma and um, something called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, some of the medications that are used here um, actually have been associated with something called angle closure glaucoma. So this is uh, related to something called narrow-angle glaucoma. Uh, so it's really important that if you are taking any of these medications for COPD or asthma, that you check in with your doctor because it can trigger a sudden um, attack on uh, your trabecular meshwork, the ciliary body of the eye. And if you're susceptible to uh, developing glaucoma and that your angles are narrow, uh, this means the anatomical opening um, in the eye where the energy, uh, the aqueous flow can uh, move from the front to the back of the eye is impeded in any way, this can create a narrow angle glaucoma situation. And last, uh, beta blockers, which not only treat uh, high blood pressure, um, but heart disease, migraine headaches, they can also be used um, to treat glaucoma. So uh, some of the research out there is actually showing that beta blockers can um, trigger some asthma symptoms. So if you do have asthma, you want to track um, your medications and maybe talk to your doctor beforehand. You know, sometimes one doctor doesn't know what the other doctor is prescribing. And one of the things I learned a long time ago is um, if I'm seeing somebody, I really want to see the whole picture. You know, what are they taking? What are their um, uh, medications that they're, they're on? And so that I can relate one condition to another. And, 
You know, when we talk about uh, any kind of a respiratory or breathing uh, disability, that we have less oxygenation and hydration going to the microcapillaries of the retina and the eyeball itself. And, you know, I talk about one of the ways to um, reduce the risk of developing eye disease is to make sure that you're getting enough oxygenation into your body, including your eyes. And if you are suffering some kind of a respiratory problem, um, this is going to put you at risk of uh, having proper circulation in your eyes. So doing some natural holistic things, you know, I would be really looking at a lot of uh, modalities, things like acupuncture, craniosacral therapy, possibly um, homeopathy, looking at your diet, looking at, you know, your lifestyle, stress, um, all of these things, you know, affect our respiratory health and in turn can affect our eye health. So I hope that gives you some, uh, some ideas. I think you need to work with your doctors closely uh, to see what medications you are taking. And if you are a glaucoma suspect and you also have a tendency towards asthma or breathing problems, it's critically important that you know exactly what you're taking and what, how it could affect you. So um, thank you so much for the question, Amy. Uh, I appreciate it. All right, next question. Uh, this is uh, a gentleman who's 72 years old, and he's dealing with glaucoma in both eyes. He's using a variety of different eye drops um, to control the pressure. He said that they did, he did two mono fruit fasts this past year using red grapes, and the pressure reduced seven points, enough to ward off the surgeon who wanted to install stents in the eyes. Uh, this gentleman presently uh, does intermittent fasting and using a totally balanced green shake for his meals. Suggest anything else to reduce uh, the use of the three drugs. He's active, not overweight, so he's got that in his favor. This is a great question. Uh, so... First of all, I want to um, point you to a study that was done um, in 2014, uh, was published in the Middle Eastern African Journal of Ophthalmology. And uh, in this particular study, re researcher, researchers took a look at the effects of fasting on intraocular pressure in black, a black African population. So this was a random, they used random sampling uh, techniques and uh, they used subjects, these were healthy adult Muslims, who were examined before uh, and during uh, Ramadan fasting, and this was in Nigeria, and some of the measurements they used before and after included visual acuity, uh, overall clinical, clinical examin examination of both eyes, and intraocular pressures were measured before and after. And the results showed uh, that fasting significantly, I'm now I'm quoting the authors, fasting significantly reduced intraocular pressure in this population, the, the, the folks that were, were measured. So the, uh, the idea about glaucoma is that it's a, it's a neurodegenerative disease. Uh, it's vascular-based. 
And uh, obviously things like inflammation, oxidative stress, trauma, stress, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, <clears throat> toxicities, you know, these are all factors that uh, cause glaucoma. And so for this 72-year-old gentleman, um, some things that I would consider would be uh, obviously uh, in terms of your dietary intake to maybe boost your fats and oils a little more. Uh, I think that uh, in some of the research out there uh, relating to glaucoma and healthy fats, uh, I think there's a correlation there. I think the um, uh, ginkgo is another one that uh, could be added. Obviously, the flavonoids uh, and things like resveratrol, uh, and you experience this with the red grapes, are very important. Um, and I would include uh, making sure you're getting enough lutein, zeaxanthin, and uh, astaxanthin as the carotenoids as a way to improve your eye health. Uh, things like quercetin and taurine. Uh, are also very important. And of course, your trace minerals. Uh, This this is sometimes overlooked. And, you know, with the way the agriculture business is these days, most of us are depleted in our um, trace mineral levels. So making sure you're getting enough magnesium, chromium, selenium, zinc, that's another one. If we go to the ARIDS study, the ARIDS uh, study, the first study that was done, zinc was a very important trace mineral in helping in the um, prevention of age-related macular degeneration. So I think going through that list, I think your cleanses and fasts are really great. I would also add acupuncture. I think that in some cases, if you can, uh, you know, increase the meridian flow in your body that can affect your eye pressure and then i would get some regular lymphatic work Uh, i've done a number of videos on the relationship between the eyes and the lymph system and glaucoma is definitely uh, associated with lymph stagnation in other words the the fluids in your body are not uh you know easily flowing you know, one of the, the great healing modalities, I don't really talk much about this, is something called continuum movement. And the founder of continuum movement, Emily Conrad, one of my colleagues, uh, she passed away a few years ago. Uh, when I started working with that community, uh, Emily had uh, a glaucoma. And this particular healing modality actually addresses the fluid uh, circulation in the body by using different movements and um, sounding and breathing sequences. So you could check that out, Continuum. I would probably send you to the Continuum Teachers Association. That's a, a group of Continuum teachers, my colleagues. I've actually been certified as a Continuum teacher as well. So I use it in my eye work all the time, and it's really it's really fabulous. Uh, so anything you can in, in do to improve your lymph function, you know, somebody wrote me recently about uh, jumping on a rebounder and how that actually can bring your eye pressure down. So if you're interested in, you know, doing some lymph drainage, just doing a few minutes every day of uh, jumping on a rebounder uh, gently can be another way. So um, you're definitely on the right track. Uh, you definitely can avoid getting these stents. 
Uh, just check in with your eye doctor about your visual field and your optic nerve health. Uh, but you're definitely on the right track, and uh, I would continue, add these few things, and I think you're good to go. All right, next question. This is from Jessica, and she's, hello, Dr. Byrne. I was wondering if you have any experience with the eyes of patients with Marfan syndrome, particularly with the dislocated lens. Thank you. Uh, yes, so I've had a lot of experience with Marfan syndrome. Um, when I first got into practice, and my first practice was in the East Coast in Philadelphia, and I had a difficult time getting patients, so I contacted the special needs populations, and Marfan syndrome, uh, that was one of the, the populations that I actually worked with quite successfully. So I have a lot of experience about it. Marfan syndrome is basically a connective, dish, a connective tissue disorder, and uh, the symptoms really affect um, many parts of the body. Um, some of the, uh, the main uh, symptoms would be, uh, like in terms of the skeletal development, it's, it's very different. Uh, Marfan syndrome folks are usually very tall and thin. Uh, they have very loose joints, um, and... Um, they also have very long and slender fingers and toes. There can be a scoliosis or curvature of the spine. Uh, sometimes there's a protrusion in the breastbone. Um, there can be some cardiovascular problems, conditions like heart murmurs and an enlarged heart. Uh, and in terms of eye symptoms, and this is what I mostly focused on, that uh, the main conditions were... Um, high myopia, astigmatism, and also something called ectopia lentis. And this means a displaced lens in the eye. So when this occurs, uh, it can cause um, a poor visual acuity, blurred vision. Uh, some other Marfan syndrome symptoms in the eyes and would include things like thinning of the cornea, um, early stages of cataracts, uh, glaucoma, strabismus, and retinal detachment. Now, Jessica, you're asking specifically about the ectopia lentis, the uh, displaced lens or dislocated lens. And uh, this, is, um, this is a very um, interesting situation. So what I'm going to say to you, Jessica, is that the source of vision is in the brain. And one of the best uh, ways to stimulate vision through the, through the brain is through movement. And uh, I haven't really spoken about this very much, but this is a perfect opportunity. Uh, in my training, uh, one of the uh, modalities that I've studied is something called the primitive survival reflexes. Now, these are very early motor patterns that start in utero and uh, they actually are uh, foundational movement patterns. One of the main reasons why uh, the prenatal uh, uh, infant starts to develop these motor patterns is they're an opportunity to help the newborn adjust to when they come out of the birth canal. That's one of the main functions of these primitive reflex movements. Now, these primitive reflex movements are governed by what we call the brainstem, which is our reptilian brain. It's the brain, part of the brain 
that teaches us about survival. And these primitive reflexes, actually, after about age one, approximately, they should be extinguished so that new motor patterns can start to emerge, which are more organized. And this has to do with integrating the vestibular, the inner ear, with the eyes. It has to do with, um, so obviously, balance, orientation, relationship to gravity. Um, And a lot of times, these primitive reflexes fail to become extinguished or integrated. And especially in um, conditions like Marfan syndrome, if there is any kind of a lag or interference in the sensory motor development, these primitive reflexes dominate the brain function, even as a person grows up and even adults still have the primitive reflex uh, patterns as a dominating system. Some of the main ones that affect our vision would be the moro reflex, the tonic labyrinth reflex, the spinal gallant reflex, the asymmetrical and symmetrical and tonic neck reflex. So um, this would be a place that I would start even if there is a, um, um, a lens displacement because, as I said, part of vision is in the brain and that if you can work with the brain and the body the person can then start to use their eyes in the context of, you know, if there are structural impediments, they can still improve their vision. So the difference between eyesight and vision is eyesight is a static measurement of reading the eye chart. Vision is how the eyes and the brain and the body work together. Question six. This is from Tom, and he's writing about his four-and-a-half-year-old son, who was diagnosed with accommodative esotropia, and his son has been seeing double. Uh, The eye doctor prescribed uh, some glasses uh, to help the crossed-eyed condition, but it appears that the eyes look worse when they take the glasses off. So his father, Tom, has any, do I have any suggestions? So let me define accommodative esotropia. It's, It's what we call refractive esotropia, It's one of the most common forms of strabismus, and it means crossed eyes. And it refers to the eyes crossing because uh, the focusing efforts of the eyes are trying to make things clearly. So there's a blurred vision out there, and what Tom's son is doing is he's, uh, he's working really hard muscularly to try to keep things clear. He typically... People who are uh, diagnosed with accommodative esotropia also measure uh, a moderate to high amount of farsightedness. So the side effect of accommodative esotropia is there's too much convergence. And um, there's a couple ways that uh, allopathically that you treat this. Uh, The first way is that you put eye drops in the eyes to paralyze the focusing muscles and then when you measure the, uh, the refractive area for glasses, you usually prescribe either a high amount of farsightedness, and in some cases you might even prescribe a bifocal. So these are all uh, symptom-based approaches. Um, so Tom, I'm going to create a paradigm shift and talk about strabismus from more of a whole body point of view. 
So in strabismus, what this means is not only the eyes, but the body, the sides of the body, and the hemispheres of the brain are not working together. So what this means is, is that uh, because there's a lack of cooperation or integration between the eyes and the brain and the body, the brain has to make a certain compensation, especially when a person is shown you know, objects, details, and so on, what they do is they muscle it as a way to overcompensate uh, in order to see things clearly. Usually when the doctor is prescribing a very high amount of farsighted uh, glasses, it actually uh, disconnects the person from their ability to have visual development. And so their visual development gets stunted as a way to symptomatically kind of fix the eyes to force them to look straight. So it's basically a cosmetic uh, approach to being able to uh, keep the eyes straight. It doesn't work very well. And as you can tell that the more you wear these strong glasses, actually the more tired the eyes become and there's no improvement in the skill set of being able to coordinate both eyes together. So what this means is, is that, you know, vision is a learned and developed skill. And we actually begin learning and developing our visual coordination very early on when we start learning how to crawl, stand up, hop, skip, uh, you know, learn how to use both sides of the body together. Uh, because this, this kind of gives the eyes and the brain a map on how to work together. So right now, what you're dealing with is more of a symptom approach, uh, strong glasses. Of course, the other uh, idea is to do surgery, which is really uh, a terrible um, answer because when you do surgery on the eye muscles, you don't tell the brain what you're doing. And so the, the eyes tend to revert back to the uh, strabismus even after the surgery so it creates more confusion in a person to do the surgery. It doesn't sound like you're going to do the surgery and um, you're wanting some advice. So, you know, the, the hard part here is that when we see the eyes turning in, uh, we immediately get triggered that, oh my God, I've got to do something immediately to fix the problem. And that's, that's kind of where people run into difficulty with their kids because they take a look at uh, the eyes crossing and they go, oh, we have to fix it right away. So the eyes crossing is a symptom of a deeper imbalance in terms of the eyes, brain, and body working together. So the physical eye therapy exercises are fantastic in helping a child learn organically how to integrate and the key word is integration. And it isn't just integration in the eyes, but it's an integration in the eyes, brain, and body. So <clears throat> the uh, first step is something in the physical eye therapy, which I addressed in the last question, is, is called primitive reflex therapy. And the primitive reflexes, actually, uh, if they are fully integrated, they support visual development. And on a psychological and emotional level, what crossed eyes is, is a defense strategy and it's a pulling in of the visual world. It's also confusion in the middle of the body. So we call it the midline. 
And it's, it's a response to saying, I don't know what the heck is going on. I think I'll just muscle it and cross my eyes as a way to kind of push my way through the task you're asking me to do. The primitive reflexes, actually, uh, once you integrate them, it softens the survival responses and it opens up the brain to help the eyes start working together. So it starts with uh, primitive reflexes. The next thing that you want to do is you want to get some vestibular uh, stimulation because it's the inner ear and the eyes that actually work together in terms of... um, reducing the strabismic pattern. It's like the ears and the eyes need to work um, symbiotically so that the two eyes can straighten. So vestibular has to do with balance, orientation, um, having adventures in gravity. Uh, So there's a whole field of vestibular stimulation that can help reduce the uh, strabismus pattern. Next, you want to work with bilateral integration exercises. So this is things like crawling and hopping and skipping. These bilateral integration exercises actually help tell the eyes and the brain to work together. And in terms of getting them to be integrated, if the gross motor skills are integrated, then the fine motor skills have a a track to follow And of course, in these bilateral movement patterns, you want to include obstacle courses and you want to uh, have your child uh, be able to move backwards as well as forwards. Because in cross-eyed accommodative esotropia, the whole thrust is moving forward and there is a very low awareness in the back body. And in the back body, I'm talking about the spine, the back of the body. Learning to move backwards in a bilateral integration way with uh, visually guided movements is one of the best ways to start developing our peripheral vision. So in accommodative esotropia, what's lost is the peripheral vision. And so developing more peripheral awareness is another key factor. The more you can get your child into big movements, especially in peripheral vision, then they start engaging the side vision and that will get them out of the cross-eyed situation. After that, you can start working with visual skills like visual tracking, visual focusing, visual coordination skills. And this is where it gets controversial because, you know, a lot of eye doctors want to give the maximum farsighted prescription. In my opinion, I think doing either a very light prescription would be better for your son in terms of visual development. So he learns how to use his eyes and integrate it with his brain and body. And so reducing the prescription, balancing it um, would be a way to go. Now, another technique that I use is something called binasal occluders. And this is putting scotch tape on the inside, the nasal closest to the nose uh, on both lenses And what this binasal occlusion does is it allows your son to start to be aware of the peripheral vision simultaneously and that he can't cross his eyes in order to see. He's got to kind of relax his vision. And there's a real um, interesting uh, dynamic that happens 
when you start engaging and stimulating your peripheral vision as an accommodative esotrope. You start recognizing that the peripheral vision is your safety net, that that's really the way out of this. Some other ancillary therapies would be craniosacral therapy. Now, as a craniosacral therapist, whenever I work with a strabismic uh, adult or child, uh, when I do craniosacral, it actually relaxes the bones in the face and the head, and it creates more support in the eyes relaxing. And there have been some studies that uh, have been done that show a correlation and association between reducing strabismus and getting craniosacral therapy. So looking for somebody in your area, I believe you live in the Midwest, would be another uh, ancillary therapy. So there's a lot of things that you can do. I would focus on the physical eye therapy, gross motor, vestibular, uh, fine motor exercises, um, and the strabismus is going to uh, get better. It's going to get worse. There's fluctuations. And I would keep the big picture that, you know, if your son is tired, if he's under stress, the strabismus is going to be worse. If he's, uh, you know, really in a healthy state, uh, low stress, he's really integrated, you're going to notice that the strabismus is less. And just note it, that you're not trying to fix the strabismus in the moment. This is a process that your son needs to go through in terms of learning how to integrate his two eyes working together. Okay, wow. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you again for all of your questions. Um, and until next time, take good care. You're listening to a podcast with Dr. Sam Byrne. To learn more about his seminars and workshops, visit his website, www.drsambyrne.com. The Byrne Method is a trademark signature of Dr. Sam Byrne for his workshops, seminars, books, and DVDs. The information presented in this podcast is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose for this podcast is to provide information for educational purposes only. Dr. Byrne and his guests have no liability or responsibility to any person or entity for loss, damage, injury caused, or allegedly caused through the information, exercises, suggestions, explorations, or written responses presented in this podcast. Dr. Byrne is not a medical authority and his guests are not qualified to diagnose or treat any disease or health problem. This podcast is not a substitute for medical care. Dr. Byrne's information is only his personal opinion. If you have any health problem, please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have.